Welcome to Archival Fever. In each episode, your intrepid hosts take you into the archive in search of the wild, crazy, and bizarre. I'm Amy Viter. I'm Caroline Barta. Today, we're back with more letters. Except instead of last letters, we thought we'd cheer things up with rejection letters. But these aren't Dear John rejection letters. No, we're interested in how literary works are rejected. In particular, the paper trail exchanged among different departments and staff at a publishing house. So far, we've mostly focused on how archives store items from authors, artists, and famous people. So why take this bureaucratic detour? Publishing records don't just document the minutia of business. They store cultural preferences and signal social beliefs. We're reporting from the Harry Ransom Center as we dive into a massive collection of business papers, namely the records of Alfred A. Knopf, Inc. Publishing Company. In case you're not familiar with this publisher, here's a quick history. Since Knopf's founding in 1915, American publishing has seen rapid, lasting change transform the book industry. Yet, even as Knopf, the independent publisher, folded into a large conglomerate, it managed to maintain its distinctive personality and prestige. Insiders close to the company credit its legacy to several factors, leadership, staff, and brand. And outside awards have noticed. Knopf has released works by 35 Nobel Prize winners, including Kazuo Ishiguro, Thomas Mann, Toni Morrison, and Albert Camus, more than 50 Pulitzer Prize winners, and more than 30 National Book Award winners. The company's reputation began in its early years. Alfred Knopf, the company's co-founder, was determined to make his brand synonymous with luxury, like a Rolex watch or Chanel perfume. His books were designed from the beginning to signal exquisite craftsmanship. As a son of an ad man, Knopf married his noted champagne tastes with native intuition for marketing. Alongside him was his wife, Blanche Knopf, whose fierce, flinty personality and near-perfect French introduced English-speaking audiences to the likes of André Gide, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir, as well as tastemakers from South America and Europe. While a quick look at their book list reveals that the company published plenty of filler material, public perception has long connected this excellence with Knopf's particular sign, the Russian Greyhound. An admirer of the British publisher Heinemann's mark, an ink-drawn windmill, Alfred Knopf recognized that having a trademark sign would help people recognize his books. Blanche's fascination with Russian Borzoi and a pointed suggestion to her husband provided Knopf with their branded mark. Although Blanche would quickly lose interest in owning the Russian hunting dogs, the Borzoi as a brand was immortalized. The drawn Borzoi, along with the phrase, this is a Borzoi book, became intensively entwined with the company's long-term marketing of the book list as holding value. Knopf has only ever had three editors-in-chief, Alfred Knopf, Robert Gottlieb, and Sony Mehta. The transfer of leadership was choreographed far more adeptly than most business arrangements. Knopf handpicked Gottlieb. Gottlieb chose Mehta. Both Knopf and Gottlieb even advised their successor after relinquishing the top job and continued to work part-time editing or consulting on high-profile projects. Carol Janeway, who worked at Knopf under all three men, remarked, In the least religious way possible, it was something like apostolic succession. Although each man had a unique vision of publishing and their role as editor-in-chief, they fundamentally shared their love for the book as an object. This consistency in top leadership provided a unifying voice and clarity of vision amidst the sea of changes around and even in the firm. Each man shepherded the firm through different challenges, and they had help. Even in this whirlwind industry, Knopf editors, publishers, and designers joined the company and never left. So what makes a book worthy or not worthy to be a Borzoi book? It's become a trope for rejection letters sent to authors to emerge years later, leading to questions about the taste or ability of publishers to recognize artistic value. Many letters have never been seen by the actual artist. 
Instead, artists receive a sanitized communication smoothing the strong opinions of publishing staff. We dug through boxes and boxes of Knopf business records to find letters explaining why the firm rejected the work of two famous authors, Langston Hughes and Ray Bradbury. Our first rejection letter describes in no uncertain language why Knopf rejected a collection of poetry from Langston Hughes. In case you're not familiar with his backstory or snoozed too long during high school or college literature class, James Mercer Langston Hughes was born in 1902 to mixed-race parents in Joplin, Missouri. His parents' marriage was unhappy. They divorced when he was a young child. This left Hughes' childhood living situation in a continuous flux. He lived in 12 different American cities before the age of 12. His relationship with his parents, especially his mother, continued to be a strain throughout his life. Hughes' story career as a poet had an unlikely start. As a high schooler, his all-white classmates named him class poet, on the basis that his race gave him an innate understanding of rhythm. Despite the dubiousness of this claim, Hughes discovered his natural aptitude for verse. He published his first book of poetry, The Weary Blues, before he even finished a college degree. His poetry was influenced by jazz and the experience of the working-class Black American. After college, he still had a series of odd jobs, but he never stopped writing. Hughes is credited as the first Black American to make a living from his writing and public speaking. While most celebrated for his poetry, Hughes also wrote novels, musicals, children's literature, short stories, essays, and plays. He died in 1967 from complications from cancer. Hughes's active writing career spanned from the 1920s to the 1960s, but his work received its widest recognition as part of the Harlem Renaissance, that time period between 1920s and 1930s in which Black Americans living in Harlem, New York, produced artistic work alongside social critique. His manuscript was received by Knopf on November 1, 1949. The following rejection report was penned by Knopf editor Herbert Weinstock. And just a warning, this letter is not nice. It includes derogatory and racialized language. I'm afraid that this is really very bad. A short resume is necessary to make my position on Langston Hughes clear. In the 1920s, when his poetry was first published, it had two great advantages. It was novel in tone and it was by a Negro. I do not think that his verse would ever have been published outside magazines if he had been white. Today, on the contrary, it has two disadvantages. It's stale in tone, and the fact that it is by a Negro no longer means anything in the way of sales. In short, not being good poetry, it has no advantages whatever except the diminishing one of Langston Hughes' name. This is a melange of short poems, really exclamations and jottings and broken up prose, on Harlem life, the hard lot of the Negro, and love. They are banal, insensitive, rife with echoes of both Hughes's earlier work and the stock of jazz bebop cliches, and altogether watery and unattractive. In all honesty, this is simply one-way ticket over again, but more tired and less likely to make any sort of stir. I think that we should not tell Langston that we do not think that there is a market so soon for another volume of his verse. That we think there would be a market for the proposed continuation of his autobiography, and that we propose not to do any more of his verse until after the prose volume, when we will issue his selected or collected poems, including, if he insists, Montage of a Dream Deferred. No other course makes the smallest sense. And no matter what, I think that we must, in fairness to ourselves and to what remains of Langston's reputation, refuse absolutely to publish this manuscript as a book. Herbert Weinstock. There's plenty to unpack in this short report. Weinstock begins with a quick and swift dismissal of the work's overall value. In essence, he predicts that the crucial artistic production of the Harlem Renaissance was just a fad. This wasn't just limited to Knopf. 
Other publishers also doubted the sales potential of writing by Black writers, particularly writers who drew upon their cultural histories for their craft. But not only was Weinstock's view of poetry limited by a historicized and Western European verse tradition, it also now reads as short-sighted and limited in what language can convey. Of course, history's long arc toward justice swung back toward Hughes. His global literary reputation grew in the 1950s and 1960s, especially as the civil rights movement gained traction. His long engagement with issues of race in America added nuance and perspective, although his positions were not unilaterally supported by younger generations of African Americans. Both his rumored politics, he was interviewed by the House Un-American Activities Committee because he was a suspected communist, and sexuality, people speculated he was gay, provoked controversy. There's a lot that could be supposed about whether or not Knopf made a mistake on this call. What is clear is that Hughes' artistic contribution to American art is significant and lasting. The manuscript would be released by another publisher in 1951. It appeared as Montage of a Dream Deferred and included 91 poems, which were intended to be read as a single poem. The form takes inspiration from a film montage in which different environments, time periods, and characters weave in and out quickly. A montage of a dream deferred focuses on the social injustices faced by Harlem residents in the post-war period. Hughes prefaced the collection by explaining, quote, In terms of current Afro-American popular music and the sources from which it progressed, jazz, ragtime, swing, blues, boogie-woogie, and bebop, this poem on contemporary Harlem, like bebop, is marked by conflicting changes, sudden nuances, sharp and impudent interjections, broken rhythms, and passages sometimes in the manner of a jam session, sometimes a popular song, punctuated by the riffs, runs, breaks, and distortions of the music of a community in transition. Now, let's listen to Hughes reading an excerpt of his poem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? In the second half of our episode, we are going to turn to another mid-century author, Ray Bradbury. His manuscripts were also read and rejected by the Alfred A. Knopf team. Born in Waukegan, Illinois on August 22, 1920, Ray Bradbury began writing at a young age. Inspired by the likes of Edgar Allan Poe, Aldous Huxley, Jules Verne, and H.G. Wells, he crafted short stories, novels, and even screenplays. Bradbury's stories from Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles to Something Wicked This Way Comes have been widely read for decades. However, for the majority of his career, he was pigeonholed as a writer of genre fiction. Known for asides, streams of consciousness, and descriptive prose poems, Bradbury defied the traditional literary boundaries of his time. He loathed intellectual authors who wanted to distinguish between serious and popular literature. In Becoming Ray Bradbury, Jonathan R. Eller explains that, quote, Throughout his early career, Ray Bradbury was torn between two impulses. On the one hand, a mounting obsession with perfection as he revised the stories that seemed to well up continuously from his subconscious mind. And on the other hand, an unflagging aversion to the advice of such genre colleagues as Henry Kuttner, Robert Bloch, and Theodore Sturgeon, who urged him to write without fear, to learn by writing, even if the result was not always the intended masterpiece. 
1953, Bradbury was courted to adapt Moby Dick by Herman Melville for film. You may have heard the novel's famous opening passage. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on the shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. For those of you who never made it through the 500-plus page novel, here's the gist. Ishmael is a sailor and the novel's narrator. He recalls Captain Ahab's obsession with Moby Dick, a giant white sperm whale. Moby Dick had bit off Ahab's leg at the knee, and Ahab was determined to get revenge. They sail on the whaling ship Pequod from Massachusetts to the UK, around the southmost tip of Africa, across the Indian Ocean, all the way to the Pacific. And spoiler alert, Moby Dick attacks their boat, leaving Ishmael as the sole survivor. In one last attempt to stab the whale, Captain Ahab gets tangled in his own harpoon line. The line forms a noose around his neck. The last we see of Ahab, he is being dragged off behind Moby Dick into the sea. Bradbury had not even finished reading the weighty tome before departing to Ireland for the film's production. He would spend nine months there. He wrote the script under volatile director John Huston's close eye. Huston even attempted to take credit for the screenplay, listing himself as co-author, which Bradbury protested to the Screenwriters Guild, but to no avail. In this clip, Ray Bradbury comments on adapting Moby Dick into a screenplay. Have you tried to read that novel? <laughs> oh my God! John Houston didn't know any more about it than I did. He wanted to play Ahab. Yeah, yeah. That's all. If you could give him a heart, we would have done it. So it took eight long months of agonizing work, self-conscious work, that finally began to relax. So I got into it. I began became seaworthy. And finally, in the eighth month, I got out of bed one morning in London. I looked in the mirror and I said, I am Herman Melville. <laughs> I sat down the typewriter in eight hours of red-hot writing, I finished the screenplay of Moby Dick. And I ran across London, and I threw the script in John Hughes' lap. I said, there, it's done. And he read it, and he said, my God, what happened? I said, behold, Herman Melville. <laughs> After completing the film script, Bradbury attempted to get it published. Printing screenplays can pose several challenges, especially for someone who is not an established screenwriter. Nonetheless, Bradbury's literary agent, Don Congdon, shopped the script around. Bradbury was one of Congdon's first clients, and the two were close friends. Bradbury described their relationship accordingly. I married Don Congdon the same month I married my wife, so I had 53 years of being spoiled by my wife and by Don Congdon. We've never had a fight or an argument during that time because he's always been out on the road ahead of me clearing away the dragons and the monsters and the fakes. Bradbury even dedicated his novel Fahrenheit 451 to Congdon. In fact, Fahrenheit 451 was published while Bradbury was away in Ireland writing Moby Dick. Congdon submitted Moby Dick to Knopf for consideration. On September 23, 1954, he received the following response. Dear Don, under separate cover, I am returning to you the screenplay of Moby Dick by Ray Bradbury. 
As we both suspected in our telephone conversation, this is not a book for us. But it does confirm my feelings that Bradbury is a real professional in whatever medium of writing he tackles. There's some bad writing here, but there's also some very fine and dramatic prose that is remarkably faithful to the book. If neither Houston nor the actors foul it up with too many pretensions, this should be a hell of a good movie. But no matter how good or successful, it's barely possible it could be both, I suppose, we don't feel we could take on this screenplay as a book. Of course, this does not mean that we are not interested in seeing Bradbury's future work. As you know, we have been long interested in him. Many thanks for sending this to me. Perhaps we'll connect on the next one. Sincerely, Joseph M. Fox for Alfred A. Knopf, Inc. Moby Dick was ultimately produced. The film premiered in 1956 in Technicolor and starred Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab and included the likes of Orson Welles. Here's a brief clip from the theatrical trailer. Ever since the beginning of time, man has pitted himself against the power of the sea to learn its secrets, to solve its mysteries. Many stories have been told of ships and the men who sail them, of sea beasts and the men who hunt them. But none has captured the imagination through the years so much as Herman Melville's immortal story of Captain Ahab, who lost his very soul in the bitterness of vengeance against the great white whale, Moby Dick. You're to look for the white whale. Whale as white and as big as a mountain of snow to chase that white whale on both sides of land and over all sides of earth till he spouts black blood and rolls dead out. The film was nominated for an Academy Award, although it received mixed responses from viewers. Moby Dick, the screenplay, would eventually be published, albeit over 50 years later by Subterranean Press, which specializes in science fiction and horror. This was not the first or last rejection Bradbury received from Knopf. They had already rejected Bradbury's short story collection, Dark Carnival. Then, in 1957, they rejected the manuscript for Icarus Montgolfier Wright. The short story about an astronaut scheduled to go to the moon was pitched as young adult fiction. The Knopf editorial staff, however, thought it would be better suited for a sophisticated magazine. The reader reports concluded that, quote, a few intellectual teenagers would go for it, but otherwise, the book would fall flat on its nose sales-wise. The book is too adult to be juvenile and too juvenile in tone to be an adult book with any sales potential. We simply cannot see our way to taking the book on as a trade item, nor does the juvenile department want to do it. This leaves it a sort of a maverick. Needless to say, these rejections didn't prevent Bradbury from becoming a literary success, although Bradbury did refuse to adapt any more novels into screenplays. And that is including his own. Bradbury was the recipient of the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1988, the National Medal of Arts in 2004, and even received a special citation from the Pulitzer Prize Board for his distinguished, prolific, and deeply influential career as an unmatched author of science fiction and fantasy in 2007. We hope this episode has whetted your interest in the machinations of publishers. If you're interested in learning more about the Knopf Collection, you too can investigate its massive holdings at the University of Texas at Austin's Harry Ransom Center. 
You can also learn more about Langston Hughes and Ray Bradbury by visiting their personal archives. Langston Hughes' letters, manuscripts, and photographs can be visited at the Beinecke Library at Yale University. And Ray Bradbury's personal archive is located at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes are available the 15th of every month. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Archival Fever and let us know about an archive you love, maintain, or think we should feature in the last five minutes of our show. Our show notes are available at archivalfever.com. Our music is by Yvonne Teo. Sound editing is by Jacob Weiss and his team at UT Liberal Arts Development Studio. Financial support by UT College of Liberal Arts. Thank you for listening.